Welcome to MI Live, a podcast from Macros Inc., where we talk about how to make your nutrition and fitness goals realistic, achievable, and sustainable. All right, let's get to the show. All right, and we are back with MI Live, uh, your daily nutrition talk show where we try to tell you how to help you, uh, where we try to help you. Learn how to make your nutrition sustainable, realistic, and your goals achievable. We also work in some training things in this because that's a big part of it. And today, Brad and me are joined by Dr. Michael Stair. Do you, does Michael make you feel weird, or is it just Michael? Feels like my uh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Bradley Dieter and Dr. Michael Stair, and then just Jay. We'll go with. Um, so, for anybody who's not seen Mike on here before, Mike is a uh, fellowship trained physical therapist, a physical therapy educator, a personal trainer, and nutritionist in the Boston area. Uh, he's the owner of uh, Orthopedics Plus Physical Therapy and Spectrum Fitness Consulting. So, Mike, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Yeah. Hanging Good. Out. I think, is it, how many weeks has it been since we had you on here last? Has it been like a month? About that? Uh, I think it was uh, only a few weeks, like maybe three weeks. Okay. Yeah. I've lost all sense of time since March, <laughs> so I have no idea. I'm like, I don't know what day year, or month or it might be 2025 and I have no idea. Somebody, right. asked, somebody asked me a day how my 4th of July was that I haven't seen in like a week and a half and I can't remember what I did on the 4th of July. And I felt like that was like three years ago. So, you know, <laughs> I was, yeah. I was so taken back by the question of somebody asking me about the 4th of July that I was like, wasn't that like, isn't it August? <laughs> um, so today we're going to, we're just going to jump right in it. Uh, and we're going to talk about shoulder injuries. So that is something that Mike and I were talking about. He's been, uh, presenting a lot on it lately, I believe. And, uh, figured why not talk about it with everybody else? So, I think the, a good place to start is what are the 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 most common shoulder shoulder injuries and or reasons for that you see people getting shoulder injuries. Yeah, I um, I'll make a little bit of a semantics change to that. I I, I think referring to the shoulder pain is key because uh, an injury seems to evoke an idea that there was a sudden incident and then all of a sudden my shoulder is a problem. Um, you know, and that, you know, is obvious, you know, that could be a trauma situation, but um, a lot of folks come to me with shoulder pain. And one of the main things I have to try to figure out is, uh, is it referred pain? So that's one common thing. They think it's a shoulder problem, but it's actually a neck issue. So that's probably one of the most common things. Um, trauma, obviously, is, is another. Um, overuse is probably the other category I'd see where um, it's just a mismatch between the activity they're doing and their capacities that they have. Um, I'd probably say that poor shoulder mechanics is another reason for injury. And I'd probably a less commonly appreciated one, but one that I'm seeing because I see a lot of spine issues as well, um, is chronic nerve hypersensitivity. Um, it's not that their shoulder is uh, damaged and that's what's causing their pain but rather they've had chronic or years worth of trauma to it. So normal stimuli is enough to cause the sensation of pain. Um, but the ones I think I most commonly uh, are, are helping people with in terms of uh, people that go to a gym and they experience shoulder problems or pain, um, it's probably when it's due to overuse or poor shoulder mechanics. Those are probably the two most common things for people who are fit or trying to work out and they're getting stuck that's usually the most common ones that I see. Okay. Yeah. And 
the the overuse one I think is a uh, the 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 one that sneaks up. Do you think that one sneaks up on people more, or the improper mechanics sneaks up on people more? Yeah, it's, it's hard to delineate the two. Um, I would probably say that it's probably, as you mentioned, the overuse scenario. It's um, and that's harder to diagnose as a patient to be able to articulate. Hey, this is what's causing my shoulder. I've been doing this or that. Um, when it's a mechanics issue, usually they can pinpoint it to certain movement. Every time I'm pressing or whenever I do overhead press or whenever I'm doing a certain form of upright row or so or cleans, um, I think that's more obvious to them. But the overuse is the thing that stumps a lot of people. I've been doing this same workout for you know two, three years. All of a sudden, my shoulders starting start to bother me. You know, what gives? Um, so I think whenever I see whether it's a mechanics issue or overuse issue, uh, the first thing I do is just look at their general workout structure. Um, more often than not, it, and I had just this case two weeks ago, uh, she reported what her workout routine was, and it looked fairly normal. You know, there were some uh, some pushing exercises, some pulling exercises, leg exercises, a total body routine. She does that three days a week. Looks normal. And digging in a little bit deeper, she told me she's also doing a boot camp. And doing a boot camp, she's doing, you know, burpees, she's doing mountain climbers, you know, every version of plank you can imagine, uh, kettlebell swings. And then she does a bar class. And during the bar class, they're doing these oscillatory movements with weights for prolonged periods of time. So essentially, I laid it all out for her on a piece of paper. I said, you're six days a week, you're doing shoulder intensive work. Um, we don't have to go into the unique mechanics of your shoulder. The first thing to do is you're overloading the shoulder. We need to modify that. Um, so I think that's probably the most common uh, thing that trainers and therapists alike can spot. And with a, a pretty broad brush, I'd say that a huge percentage of people would benefit just from looking at the programming. So one of the questions I've always had, you know, about overuse injuries is what, and I, I'm guessing it probably differs a little bit joint to joint, but what are the primary kind of mechanisms of pain or injury that arise from overuse? Is it, you know, is it more like muscle bodies? Is it more kind of that muscle tendon junction? Is it tendon issues? Like, I guess what tissue is primarily the results or the, the, the place where the pain's coming from in those injuries? And then what are the mechanisms of injury from overuse? Yeah, this is where it gets really fascinating. Um, it seems that the target for a lot of studies when they find pathology or they suspect where pathology is coming from is right at the tendon bone juncture, uh, just a few centimeters or millimeters actually from the insertion of the tendons onto the bone uh, is what's called a hypovascular zone. Um, there's less metabolic activity. There's more susceptibility to strain and failure. Where it gets even more interesting, however, though, is the preponderance of people that have no symptoms and no shoulder problems that have known pathology mm -hmm. is off the charts. Yeah. If you're over 60 years old, um, there's a 54 and you're asymptomatic and you're pain free. Uh, there's a 54 percent chance that you have a significant rotator cuff tear. If you're younger than that, there's a 34% chance. And these are in asymptomatic people. So it's really hard to specify a direct mechanical link between this is the tissue being damaged 
and this is where the pain's coming from. Um, a lot of clinicians are moving away from that pathoanatomic model. Not to say that it's not important. I mean, my undergraduate degree is in biomechanics, but um, to de-emphasize that seems to be more in line with the with the literature. Um, but there are some pretty um, interesting findings to suspect that it's probably not a muscle, uh, for example. It's probably not the labrum uh, because labral tears, again, are super common um, and repairs of labrum don't work very well. Um, so it seems that the tendon, there's something in the tendon that's triggering this failure and these symptoms, um, but it's not as clear as you would think if you just saw an MRI and you found where the tissue lesion was. Aha, that's why they're in pain, and that's why they're having a problem. So um, what I think is happening in more cases than not, rather than a being able to denote that this is a tissue being damaged and this is why they're having pain, rather it's a strain tolerance issue. For some reason, the tissue is not capable of tolerating strain, and it seems that the reasoning behind it is that when you do strain properly a tendon, it becomes less painful. And the crazy thing about this is that they've shown that when you apply appropriate load to a tendon, and specifically the, the rotator cuff, uh, within about 12 weeks, it starts becoming either asymptomatic or less symptomatic. However, the mechanical changes for a tendon can take anywhere from 24 weeks to 24 months. Hmm. So it seems that load is the solution, but we can't specify that there's a certain degree of damage that correlates with the pain. So I know it sounds confusing, but um, we're finding that the Goldilocks zone is really what's helping people the most. Determining too little load, it's, the tissue is going to fail, it's going to become weak and more prone to damage. Too much load, we have the overuse problem. So that's why I keep coming to um, priming the appropriate load for the tissue and looking at the cause of many of these problems is a mismanagement of load to recovery. And so how do you, how do you gauge that Goldilocks zone? Is it mostly patient feedback or is it some pre, like premeditated amount? Well, they've looked at that with larger tendons. Um, they haven't found a, a, a really good load amount for uh, rotator cuff specific, but for larger tendons like the patella and the Achilles, they've gone from two general approaches. Knowing that load universally has been found to be effective for restoring function and integrity of the tissue uh, for tendons and the Achilles and the patella, there's two approaches. One approach is to load it every day and forget about pain. Just even if it's painful, load it because it'll get better. Uh, the other approach is maybe we can find um, a tolerable amount of load that won't cause this neural hypersensitivity that can be a casualty of that pain, no gain approach. Mm -hmm. So what they have found is if they loaded a tendon uh, up to a tolerable level of about a five out of 10 pain, and that pain dissipated within 24 hours, that seemed to be that hitting that Goldilocks zone where people inevitably became less painful and more tolerant of activity. Um, Interesting enough, they also compared loading it three times a week uh, for like three sets of 15 versus daily. And they found it three times a week did it just as good as daily. So right now, that is what I'm 
uh, uh, carrying over to practice, uh, loading a tendon of allowing symptoms to maybe get up to a five out of 10, but not any greater and making sure they dissipate the baseline within 24 hours and doing that three days a week. Uh, we're finding that's serving people pretty well. Hmm. So building on something that you, you talked about, you, you mentioned earlier for a labral tear. Um, and, and that kind of, I, I had a tear, I've torn the labrums in both my hips before and yeah. the, and, everybody I had mixed reviews and I had a rotator cuff tear. And for all three of them, I've had mixed, um, I didn't do surgery for any of them. And I've had people telling me, you know, the labral tears were very small. Uh, the rotator cuff, they wanted to do surgery. I was 14. I, other people advised against it. I'm glad I didn't do you. So I guess I have two questions. One in with rotator cuffs. Do you think that people have more labral tears versus rotator cuff tear? Um, or which is more, more common in people, um, or is it just an even mesh? And then I guess that's the first question. Okay. So, um, there was a study done in 95 American Journal of Sports Medicine, and it was, uh, essentially the idea was to find a control group. They wanted to know what did normal shoulders look like so that when they MRI pathological, pathological shoulders, they could compare. So they sought out a bunch of people zero are um, 17 to 49 years old. They had zero out of 10 pain, normal function. And they found not one person out of the hundreds that they MRI. These are asymptomatic high functioning young people. Not one person did not have any defects. They all had some form of anatomical lesion, every single one of them. So um, in terms of the prevalence we're seeing in, again, asymptomatic people, um, Prevalence can be as high as 34 to 54% in rotator cuff. Uh, I'm not aware of any prevalence studies on labrum except for baseball players. Um, and I believe those who are 30 and older, it was something like 100%. I mean, it was, they wow. all had some, some type of fraying, some type of tear. Now, there's different types of tear. I think they classify them in about four different types. Um, but I think um, maybe getting into your next issue is okay. So it, I think it's reasonable to say that if you're an active person and you've played sports, there's a high likelihood if you get an MRI with contrast, they're going to find a labral tear. Um, probably a slightly less likelihood they're going to find a rotator cuff tear, uh, but that's, again, not uncommon. Okay. Getting back to the labrum thing, the most important thing about that, though, is what do you do about it, right? I mean, should you get it repaired? And it's a common course that a lot of people go through. And unfortunately, it's happening less often now that I'm reaching out to the public about this. But um, most times I see people, they have gone through injections, rest, wait and see, uh, multiple consults, surgery. And it's not until then that they're thinking, well, maybe I don't want to do surgery. Should I try therapy? And the common response you know, from many surgeons is that, yeah, I give it a shot. But they're told two things. One, give it about four to six weeks and see what happens. And if that's not better, come back to me and talk to me about surgery. Now, do you understand the implications of that? So there's two huge problems. One is the assumption that you're going to fix something in four to six weeks. And when we just mentioned that tissue remodeling, if that's part of the solution, at the minimum is going to take 12 weeks and it's probably going to be more likely a year or beyond. That's exactly what mine took was was a year before I I stopped having chronic pain every day, um, yeah. and and it was and I did I did my own 
therapy. I mean, I talked to a couple people and then I just, I worked out and progressively just lifted heavier, heavier, heavier and built up muscle and repaired it again. I mean, I think I took five months off any, any type of physical activity because I couldn't even walk. It was, it, it hurt so bad to stand. I would walk with my, I'd stand, uh, when I was at the time I was teaching advanced cardiovascular life support. So it was like six to eight hours of standing a day. And I would have to stand with my leg up most of the day. Cause I couldn't put any time if I moved wrong with weight on there, it would just pain just shot down me. And the recommendation was, it was every physician that I talked to about it was, oh no, just get surgery, just get surgery. And the more I talked to physical therapists about it, it was, well, maybe, you know, do you have to be repaired right away or can you take the time, heal, recover, and then work on prevention so it doesn't happen again? And and that's what I did. And I'm beyond happy that I went that route. Do do you think? And my second question to this was: Do you think that that people go for rotator for rotator cuff injuries? Um, do you think they go the surgical route way too much? And is there anybody like? Is there a criteria where like you need surgery? Be let's not even try therapy. Go right to surgery. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there was a study that was done um, that looked at predictors as to who would do better with uh, surgery versus non-surgery. And the study came up with absolutely zero predictors. They could not tell who would be a good candidate for surgery, who wouldn't. Because, and just to get back to that, in terms of the studies looking at surgery versus therapy, um, most of them show that it's equivocal, um, meaning that, you know, you take 100 people, you know, all with rotator cuff painful tears, 50 will do fine with surgery, 50 will do fine with therapy. Um, so there's not great evidence that one's better than the other. So just like any clinician would see that and say, okay, that's when you take 100 people, but what about that one person in my clinic? How do I delineate whether they would have done better with surgery or they would have been done, done better with therapy? So this study tried to look at that, and they found the only factor, they looked at demographics, they looked at exam findings, there was only one factor that predicted whether they do better with surgery versus therapy. And it was patient expectations. If the patient expected to do better with therapy, they would have done, they did better with therapy. If the patient expected to do better with surgery, they did better with surgery. So I think that's a a pretty interesting thing. So to answer that, we're not able to predict who's going to be a better candidate. That being said, it seems that younger people um, and um, tend to have and traumatic tears tend to do better with surgery. Um, so they've seen people cross over from you know doing conservative care to surgery, and the ones that did cross over to surgery ended up doing uh, better. Um, but we still can't predict that because a huge percentage of people again have tears and do better with with therapy. Um, one other really interesting thing, though, to bring up about this is that there was a study done. I'm actually was just working on the presentation, so I think you'd have it up here, um, where they looked at people that had surgery and they had amazing outcomes. I mean, they're throwing baseballs again. They're doing overhead lifting again. And to give you an idea how rare that is at the rotator cuff repair, I think only 26 percent of major leaders that have had a rotator cuff repair go back to playing baseball again. So wow, that's low. Holy. Given God. that, um, 
I believe it was uh, Opta um, et al., World Journal of Orthopedics, 2015, um, found that um, when they looked at people that had amazing outcomes, um, they wanted to look back at the surgery, at the MRI, to see the tendon and see, well, what type of suturing did they do? What type of surgery did they do that made their outcome so great? And they found uh, 20 to 30% of them performed. <laughs> so the, tear, the repair had actually failed. But they had amazing outcomes. Is that? So, do you think that's more of a placebo effect with them? Um, I don't know if it's placebo. When it comes to labrum, yes, and, and I'll get into that one. That's pretty interesting. But um, I think what it does is it comes to the forced rest and the forced rehab. Uh, because the only thing unique about all those cases was that they all did rehab and they all had a protocol where they had to be, you know, in relative rest in a sling. Um, so, I mean, I know people that had rotator cuffs that were bench pressing the day before they had surgery. So maybe it just validated their need to scale back the amount of overuse or the amount of irritating activities they were doing, allowed it to go through the early repair inflammatory phase, and then they gradually loaded it according to the protocol. Maybe that's why they did better. Okay. Do you, do you think that, you know, I, I know you said that it's, <clears throat> they don't have very many predictive things on where you, where you should go to. Do you think that age plays a part into it? You know, if we have a, an 80 year old person who, who has a rotator cuff injury, you know, is obviously there are considerations. They might not be able to go to rehab. They might not be able to do that, but assuming that all things are equal, they can get to rehab. They are capable of doing rehab. Um, do you think that, age plays an outcome in what the recommended treatment would be, or is it more the severity of the tear? Um, it, I think age is more so than severity of tear. Severity of tear does not correlate with uh, the amount of pain that somebody's in um, and doesn't necessarily correlate with the outcome from surgery. So um, age is definitely a factor. I mean, your you know, glucose uh, uh, or your proteoglycan content and extracellular matrix changes, your ratio of type 1 cartilage and type 3 cartilage is far weaker changes. Um, so, yeah, I think age is a factor with that. I, the younger you are, the more resilient you're going to be. You're going to have a better recovery from a surgery if you go that route. Um, interesting enough, they're finding smoking is a big factor and obesity is a factor um, in your ability to recover and regenerate tendon. So given that's the source of the, the surgery uh, and assumingly the source of their dysfunction, um, I think, yeah, that is a factor. Um, I want to get back to the labrum thing that you mentioned, though, too, because you mentioned, is it a, possibly a placebo? So there was a crazy study that was done. Uh, I believe it was 2017, Schroeder et al. And it was a, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And the cool thing about it is that they included a sham uh, study. Which, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, that's essentially you have one person that goes in and is told, well, actually, you have three groups of people. All of them had painful labral tears. And they were told, you're going to get surgery. Um, one group actually had the surgery, so they repaired the labrum. Another group, they took the bicep tendon and reattached it elsewhere. And then a third group, they just poked two holes in their shoulder, anesthetized them, woke them up, you know, two hours later for six months, nobody knew who actually had the surgery. They tracked them for six months, a year, and then two years. The outcomes amongst all three groups were identical. 
The crazy thing was, though, is that the the percentage change or improvement didn't change once they unblinded them. Meaning that if it wasn't a placebo, if it was a placebo effect, you would have expected the sham group to start decreasing in their outcomes after six months and then the intervention group to improve. But in spite of being unblinded, it didn't change. So I don't think it is a placebo thing based on that, on that pretty rare evidence. Is, um, is it more like the rest and the rest and not using it, like you said, for the rotator cuff? Yeah, and, and it might be, not be that degree of rest, by the way, because there's another study that looked at people that had, uh, they were using slings after surgery. And another group was told not to use a sling after surgery. At six months, the non-sling group had less pain and better range of motion. Um, after a year, it didn't matter. So I think it's what I, I like to use the word relative rest. Um, again, hitting that Goldilocks zone. Complete immobilization is always a problem. Uh, too much use is always a problem. I think when people have the threat of the severity of a surgery, they start respecting pain more. They start respecting you know, the tissues more. They're not as careless. Um, they're, they're monitoring their loading a little bit more. A lot, a little bit more. I mean, drastically more. And again, I think that is the unifying theory behind all of this. It's just when people start tailoring the load according to their pain and their abilities, then they start thriving. Yeah, no, that all makes sense. So, Mike, you've had a few surgeries. How have you made the decision to rehab things versus, you know, um, have surgeries kind of on your own injuries? Like what's been the deciding factor for you? I, um, I've actually only had two surgeries. Okay. Um, and they were thrusted upon me. One was a, my, <laughs> I, one, I was immobilized without being able to move my leg with my kneecap and my thigh. And I had a completely detached patella tendon. So yeah, um, there, there's no choice in that matter. Um, the other was a fracture on an elbow. So yeah. um, trauma is a very, in, in frank trauma, it makes the decision really easy. But here's how I guide people to the surgery thing, because I don't want to give the impression that I'm against surgery. Um, I deal with a lot of post-operative, you know, patients that do amazingly well. And uh, sometimes I'm actually the one that's encouraging them to pursue it. Um, Here's how I guide them in general, regardless whether it's a shoulder issue or anything. Uh, Exhaust conservative care. And what I mean by conservative care is avoid the thing or not avoid, minimize or modify the thing that might be provoking or irritating it for a relatively short period of time. Get yourself in as great a health as possible. If you go into a surgery and you're not healthy, your outcome is not going to be great. I don't care how good the surgeon is. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're overweight, lose some weight. If your diet is off, change it up. If you're sleeping like crap, change that stuff up. Because everything is going to be magnified massively after that recovery. Um, I have people working on getting their legs super strong before they go in for a rotator cuff surgery. And people are like, what does that have to do with it? Go ahead and try to get out of bed or off a chair if you got weak legs without using your arms. And now you have a rotator cuff issue. You're bed bound. You're going to be sitting in a chair all day. So um, I'm, I try to go for that. And then I tell them this is how long the surgical re- recuperation is going to be. So for a rotator cuff, we're looking at about 12 months is when you're starting to say, okay, I'm glad I did this. About three to six months, you're thinking, why the heck did I go through this? I am miserable. And I'm not as good as I was prior to the surgery. 
right around six months, people are starting to see the light. And about 12 months, if they've done everything right, they're like, okay, I'm glad I did this. Uh, not always, but uh, if it was a good decision for them. So I tell them rehab is going to take you six to 12 months anyways. So what do you have to lose? Try conservative care, give it three, six months, and you should start seeing that there's some benefits. If you don't, and you've tried everything that you can, then you go into surgery a far better candidate because mentally you're prepared for the risk of it. Uh, you're not going to be second guessing yourself when you go into the OR room. Uh, physically, you've as best as possible modified your habits, addressed the motor control impairments, got some of the ancillary issues and adjacent tissues stronger. Um, so you're just going to make yourself a better outcome uh, for surgery. So I look at that as not a, a two different paths, surgery or rehab. I look at it as the same path, and you might end up veering to the right, or you might just keep going down the road. Um, so that's usually how I guide people with that. And um, I think people appreciate that because, you know, there's, there's risk and some big issues with these surgeries. You no, know, that, that, that completely makes sense. I, I mean, you didn't even guide me, and I appreciate it. So I think that we're on a – I think that's a, a fantastic approach. And you don't hear – I don't think you hear the – you hear people say, oh, well, try try rehab, try this, and then do surgery. What do you have to lose? <clears throat> Pardon me. But I think that the the way you put it is you're going to go into it as a better candidate, and it'll probably improve your overall outcome if you try this first anyways, because you should be here before you go into surgery. Let's see if it works on its own. I think that's a, a great way. And um, real quick, if anybody has any questions for Mike, Brad, or myself, uh, feel free to ask away in your uh, either on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, that's where we're live at, Facebook and YouTube. Um, Mike, so since we are a nutrition show, and you had kind of touched on it in your last thing you were talking about, what what kind of nutrition tips do you have for for somebody who who's recovering from a shoulder injury? Um, I you know we we all I think. Well, the three of us and some of our listeners, most of our listeners, maybe none. Uh, you know, we want to be in a calorie surplus. It's probably not the best time to be dieting unless you're extremely, unless you're, you're overweight. But if you're if you're at a healthy body weight, we probably want to be in a slight calorie surplus. But what do you, what do you typically recommend? Um, I guess for two populations: one for people who are who are overweight and need to lose weight because then we're taking calories away and decreasing their healing capacity, and for people who are either. At a, at a healthy body weight, what do you recommend for each of those populations? Yeah, I, I would say it, it wouldn't be far different from what you've already outlined. Um, I would say that the biggest change I have to uh, do with people's diets is when they are postoperatively. That's probably where I, I get a little bit more opinionated on that, especially if it's a major trauma like a total shoulder. Um, the evidence I've seen is points to, I believe, between 10 and 20 percent surplus. Um, for about six to eight weeks postoperatively. Um, the reason why I have to mention that a lot is because most people think they need to do the opposite. You know, I'm going to be so sedentary. I'm not, you know, doing much exercise, so I need to really cut down. Um, for uh, the rest of the population that's, you know, overweight, for example, and they have a shoulder issue, uh, again, it's not too different from what I tell anybody that I'm working, that I'm trying to help them get healthier. Part of getting healthier is going to be getting more active, getting stronger. Uh, one of the casualties, as we all know, when you cut calories is a loss of lean tissue. 
Um, lean tissue is certainly something we want to preserve as much as possible, especially in rehab. Um, so we make sure they're trying to get their protein levels adequate, um, maybe even beyond adequate uh, based on, you know, the variety of recommendations we out there. So that's probably the most common thing we have to tell them as well. Um, they're cutting their calories, but they're not getting enough protein. And how is tissue remodeling going to occur if we're not getting enough protein? Um, those are two of the most simple things that I try to tell people. And, um, you know, for the rest of the population, that's more about maybe they're not obese, but they're trying to get super lean for the summer or for whatever. Um, again, rehab is not a great time to work on aesthetics, but, um, you know, and go into an 800 calories, you know, deficit and, you know, <laughs> it's going to be pretty tough because I look at dieting as a stress when you're at that luxury, you yeah. know, when you're trying to get from, I look great to, I want to be stage worthy. That's a huge stress. Um, sleep is affected. I know when people go on very hypochloric diets oftentimes, and that's not something we want to mess with during rehab is not getting enough sleep. So, um, that might be a unique situation where we have to guide them a little bit. Okay. Brett, do you have, have you in, you know, and I know some of your research from other areas, not in human nutrition, uh, your horse research and things like that might bleed over. Is there anything that you would recommend for people as far as nutrition for rehab or anything you've seen? Um, I mean, there's outside of kind of what Mike covered, there's, there's not a lot of great evidence. Um, one of the problems becomes the, like the strength of an intervention of like some small supplementation or things like that is so minor compared to all the other components of like rehabilitation. Right. So, I mean, we know calorie surplus, we know protein makes a difference. We know some things like, you know, collagen supplementation has been shown to help with some of those things. But other than that, there's not a lot that I'm aware of. Um, and I do think it comes down to the fact that those types of interventions are so small in the grand scheme of all the other pieces of like, like Mike said, you know, how you load and when you load and how long you load probably is a lot more important than what supplement you're taking in terms of recovery. Um, so I think a lot of it does come down to those, those major components that actually make the big difference. And a lot of these other maybe minor, minor things are, are not as powerful. Now there is, there is some evidence about, you know, kind of using and abusing non-steroidal anti-inflammatories is kind of delaying some of the healing process. Um, some of the supplementations that are recommended that are anti-inflammatory, like I know, um, like I think it's a bromelain, one of the pineapple enzymes people like promote as an anti-inflammatory. I know that can actually kind of delay some of the healing processes. Um, so I know there's, there's some things like that to consider. You're a bromelain. I thought that's true. It's been a long time <laughs> since I got one of those in today. So we had a, a, so first Amber Shaw said, good morning from Italy. Good morning, Amber. And then Christina Lynn said, great info. Thanks for sharing. I applaud your approach for getting people as healthy as possible before surgery. You rarely hear, you rarely hear that from the medical field, not a shoulder related question. So if you don't want to address it, I understand. Can you make suggest, suggestions for uh, chronic Piriformis, is that piriformis yes. ache? Uh, done deep tissue massages, massages and stretches. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, if you guys don't mind deviating to that, I, I go right ahead. 
some opinions on that. Um, I personally believe that is a way overdiagnosed problem. The piriformis is one of six lateral rotators of the hip. The reason it's often targeted, if you look at the anatomy, it's like taking all your fingers like this and saying this is the one that's the problem. I mean, it's it's hard to say that it's not the gemellus or the obturator. Why the piriformis? The reason it's targeted often as a diagnosis is because in about, I think, 20% of the population, the sciatic nerve will pierce through the piriformis muscle. So um, it's been suggested then that if that is the problem, well, maybe it's the piriformis that's impinging on the nerve. So assuming that logic is correct, which I'm not ready to do, the treatment that's been suggested is that, okay, so this muscle is impinging this nerve, let's stretch the muscle. To me, that makes no sense. We're going to take a muscle that's impinging a nerve and pull on it more. That seems it would do the opposite. And in fact, um, the most common uh, symptoms I are cases I get that have buttock type of symptoms where the assumption is that it's piriformis. They've done lacrosse ball mobilizations, self-mobilizations. They've had aggressive soft tissue work and stretching. Um, maybe it's biased because I tend to see the ones that fail that. Um, usually when I have them stop doing that and I start targeting the source of the problem because I can often reproduce their pain through movements at the spine. The spine, uh, when you have damage at the spine, a common referred pain pattern is into the, uh, the buttock. And I think piriformis pain, it's kind of like um, trying to change the light bulbs in your house when the power went out. You know, it's not your light bulb. It's something down the road that's the issue. So more often than not, I can re reproduce their pain by uh, mechanics at their spine. So it can't be something further away like the piriformis. Um, Again, that's not to avoid a case where you can have, um, there have been some studies showing that there can be tears in the uh, lateral gluteal muscles. Um, that can sometimes mimic symptoms that are similar to what people would term piriformis issues. The sciatic nerve can be irritated as well. So um, I believe it was Amber, is that her name? Uh, this was Christina. Oh, I'm sorry, Christina. Uh, so Christina, I would suggest that um, somebody take a look at your spine and, you know, oftentimes that looks at ergonomic changes, core um, exercise. I hate that term, but it's most people identify with it. Uh, motor control training. Um, look at that. Obviously, look at your old general exercise program, too. See if there's anything off with your technique. Um, but start snooping around at the spine. I always want to rule out the spine is not the cause of that before I assume it's a local problem. Hmm. That was... That was, I was not expecting a, a, a talk on that, but that was, I really like that. So thank you for that, Mike. That was really interesting. The uh, Sheila had asked, uh, she said, this is fascinating, but my internet keeps cutting out, uh, crying, pouring tear, crying face emoji. Is this going to be available to rewatch later? Yeah, Sheila, this will be on, uh, you can go right to YouTube, macrosync.net slash YouTube. Also uh, view the replay, or you can go to macrosync.net slash podcast or any of your podcasting provider that you listen to um and just search for am i live and you'll be able to uh listen to this on the podcast about a week brad yep yeah we're about a week behind on uh pushing things out yep or you can go right to our facebook page or the group and they're all in there as well perfect so um 
Mike, is there anything that you wanted to, to cover today that we did not? Yeah. So um, I was thinking about <laughs> this earlier and I did, I've been doing this poll and I'll, I'll ask you guys first. Uh, I've been doing this poll, you know, through all my seminars I've done and every time I've gotten this same response, but I'll ask you guys because you guys, I mean, do you guys both, any of you guys have shoulder problems right now? Yeah. Okay. Not chronic, but yeah, they come in and go. All right. I mean, not like you're going to be the typical, you know, shoulder patient, but what's, um, what do you think is the number one thing that reproduces or causes um, shoulder problems in people that have shoulder pain? The, the activity that they complain the most of that triggers their pain? Sleep. Yeah, I would, say, I would say for me, it's if I sleep wrong. Yep. 100% of the time, that is the answer I've got. <laughs> Isn't so that- I have a theory on this, and I, I've done a little research to try to validate it, but I still don't have perfect evidence on it. Um, have you guys seen somebody after they come um, out of uh, out of surgery, they have those those pillows underneath their arm and a sling? Yeah. Yep. All right. So when I tore my rotator cuff, I was back to throwing baseballs before I could sleep at night. It, it just didn't make any sense to me. The only thing that started triggering my shoulder again is when I started getting on airplanes. If I had to sit in the middle seat, I mean, I'm not a huge guy, but you know, I'm 200 pounds. If I have to keep my arms like this after an hour or two, my shoulders would be killing me. I couldn't press the next day and whatnot. So I went back to the literature on the uh, slings. The reason why they started using this abduction pillow is because they found that when your arm is at zero degrees of abduction, your blood supply to your rotator cuff significantly goes down. They also found that when you put your arm elevated about 30 to 25 degrees abduction, it reduces the tensile load by, in one study, they showed 34 newtons less. Another study, they showed 42 to 56% reduction in load on the, on the supraspinous tendon when you're up here. Now, how do a lot of people sleep? The arm pinned to their side and laying on top of it, right? Yep. Or, or yeah, I, I sleep, I sleep on my arm like that. Well, yeah. as you can see, my my sweatingness from the, uh, <laughs> the heat in this building. <laughs> so it means you have a good metabolism, right? So um, <laughs> what what I have just casually with my patients, I'd say eighty percent of them will reduce their pain by sleeping with a pillow, sleeping on their back, putting a pillow across their abdomen and underneath their arm, so it puts their arm in this position which ironically is identical to the position that you're in postoperatively to help facilitate tissue healing. And the thing about this is that when you go to try to roll over, the, the pillow, the bulk of the pillow will, will prevent that. If you go on to your other side, it keeps it from going into the impingement position. It takes a little while to get used to, but the pain relief from it tends to abate that. Um, so there's actually pillows that they've made uh, side sleeper pillows where it has a hole cut out on it so you can lay on your side with the yep. arm dangling inside of it. Um, that's probably uh, one of the most effective things that can tell people that are having chronic shoulder issues um, that doesn't involve doing any work at the gym. So, um, again, it, it hasn't been a, a carried out study, but it's got some decent physiology behind it as, as a reason why. That is very interesting that yeah. everybody says sleep. Yeah. Cause like the two chronic pain problems that I get is a shoulder from like a long time ago injury will like flare up if I sleep wrong. And then my back, like, like I haven't hurt my back lifting in probably 12 years, but whenever I do have back pain, it's from sleeping weird. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. That, that one kind of blew my mind. I was, 
I, I thought I was be, like nobody who says sleep, and then I said sleep, and there it was. That I thought I was kind of an outlier on that. That you know, it's kind of just a weird thing. But the more seminars I've done, I think we've had over a thousand people in two years at this seminar. Every single time I ask it, it's just we have the polls every time. That's the number one factor. So kind of on that vein, ergonomics is people who spend a lot of their, you know, people who maybe have chronic low back pain or things like that, or these chronic piriformis issues that they think they have. What are things you can do from like sitting at your desk all day perspectives to kind of help abate some of those things? So they've looked at special chairs. They've looked at stand-up desks. Um, my favorite thing to do, and this annoys people so much because of the simplicity of it, is uh, just get up. Get up and move as strictly as possible. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the, the notion that sitting's a new smoking thing. Yeah. Um, I looked into that claim. It's not quite accurate. Um, but it is enough to give you some suspicion that it's probably not a good idea to sit all day. Um, when it applies to the back, you know, the disc doesn't have a blood supply. So the way it gets its nutrients is through passive diffusion. And that means that requires an intermittent force gradient. So that's why it's very rarely, and you just mentioned this too, it's very rarely the intense amount of load that causes back problems. Rather, it's the chronicity of a stagnant position. And that happens through prolonged sitting. Uh, The load at the spine is much greater in sitting than it's standing. Um, And it's static. There's not an intermittent force. So the simplest thing is to get up as frequently as possible, change positions as frequently as possible, and deload, just like this. Just do a little bit of traction. You don't have to go into a full dip, but just putting some pressure through your arms intermittently to take off the weight you know, on your spine and do that frequently, um, both from a neurologic and from a physiologic standpoint, um, I find that has a, a lot of good reasoning to uh, as to how we can mitigate some of those problems. So. Um, in order of importance, again, I get up frequently um, and deload frequently. Um, could you sit with proper ergonomics? I don't think there's a lot of great evidence anecdotally. Uh, I find when people sit on their thighs versus sit on their sacrum, it tends to orientate their pelvis more neutrally, and it's much more easier to sit upright. Um, I don't find many people can sustain that for more than five or 10 minutes. So uh, that's why I don't I don't harp too much onto that point. Um, I think you can get in any position as long as you're not there for too long. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. You're you're just full of full of little great tidbits today. I like that. <laughs> it also makes me feel. It also, all of it makes me feel a lot better that these things that I'm doing to relieve pain or just feel more comfortable aren't abnormal, and they other people do them too. A lot of it's intuitive, right? I mean, you kind yeah. of figure it out after you know a while, and and some people get convinced that it's not the thing to do because they're looking for a more elaborate solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I have to have this chair that helps me sit like this, 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 so I can stay sitting when really I can just go like this for two seconds. Yeah, a couple times and I'm good. Huh? Let's see. We had uh, Christina said, uh, awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I will dig deeper into that winky face emoji. You got a winky face emoji today, Mike. You're he's nice. got all he's got all the emojis. Yeah, you got today. Two. When I get a winky face emoji, that's that's what I need. So. <laughs> uh, Leanne watching us on YouTube said, what joint or ligament is most impinged or injured during the overhead press? Um, 
I am going to base on the evidence say that none. Um, it's thought that that impingement is causing a, an issue. Um, well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Uh, the, uh, the muscle or the tendon that we most impinge would be the supraspinatus. Um, the mechanism, though, doesn't seem to be super clear because when they did subacromial decompressions, you know what those surgeries are? It's when you shave off the underside of the acromion or you get rid of that whole joint. The idea is that you take that little space between that um, bone on the top of your shoulder and the humerus, which is where the supraspinatus goes, you make that bigger. They've done studies where they shaved that down, took it away, and now they have meta-analysis. Two were released in 2019, another in 2020, no effects. So um, I think it's probably not a static structural issue, but rather dynamic. So it's probably the supraspinatus, probably because your, your uh, humerus is riding too high as you press. We find that when people can uh, keep the head of the humerus more into the socket, that chance of impingement is less. Um, but, I mean, we're talking seconds here. This is probably not causing a lot of that damage. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not convinced that overhead movement and impingement is the issue. Um, the research is still questionable. If it is, it would be the supraspinatus super tendon. Interesting. I, I would be mad if they shaved off part of my part of my shoulder, and then I found out later it didn't do anything. I don't it think I'd be really cool. happy with that one. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Steel Steel Rain on Facebook said, "Thank you for such great info. My rotator cuff issues flare periodically too. I will be sleeping with a pillow on my abdomen tonight." Yeah, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna try it tonight. See how see how it works. I always sleep on my shoulder. I put my shoulder underneath my pillow and then yeah, sleep like yeah. yeah. And it it starts to get sore after a while when I do it for three or four days in a row. Um, but if my shoulder is sore in general and then I sleep like that, it's relief. So it's kind of a a bounce thing that I have to find. Sure. Let's see. Sarah said, uh, "Any tips for helping with proprioception? Proprioception." Proprioception. Uh, proprioception? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm hypermobile and always conscious that I feel unstable in, and in the wrong position. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. Um, so proprioception is essentially your brain taking information from the tendons, the joints, the ligament, and helping you decide where you are in space. Um, a perfect example of that is when you stand on one foot and you close your eyes. The ability to stay upright is based on the input you're getting from the joint telling you where you are in space. Um, the idea on improving proprioception, if like in her case, you're hypermobile, is that it keeps your joint from uh, gliding too much and, and moving too much. Um, it really wouldn't be a whole lot different than how we would train any other shoulder type of issue because uh, that makes most shoulders more stable. Um, I like to start with uh, some very rudimentary isometrics and then move into um, some less complicated movements and then go to more complicated movements. When people start with excellent rotation and a dynamic movement out here or cleans or kettlebell swings, um, it can be overwhelming for somebody that has instability with proprioception problems. So starting out very basic, some uh, uh, straightest interior presses, essentially it's a shoulder blade press without using the elbow. Um, going uh, into closed chain, where you do what we call serratus anterior push-ups, start off an angle, go on to a, a, the floor as you get stronger, um, general rotator cuff strengthening, a lot of back strengthening will work well, um, 
there could be a lot more nuanced things depending on your individual case. But start with isometric and uh, limited range of motion movements. And once you start feeling stronger, more stable, then start going into the more dynamic movements. Perfect. And then uh, Leanne thanked you. She said, cool, thanks. I know if the form is perfect, there are zero issues. She was just curious. Perfect. Well, Brad, do you have anything that you wanted to add into the conversation today? Uh, anything you want to talk so. about? I, I think mean, my brain's been sufficiently exploded today. So Sufficiently exploded. <laughs> yeah, no, this was a, uh, a crazy... All not even all over the place. Just a, in in fifty two minutes, I think I got more knowledge on rehab than I have had in an entire lifetime. So, cool. uh, Mike, is there anything that you wanted to talk about again? Any any other topics you wanted to cover before we leave? Uh, I could go babbling on forever. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you guys write uh, guide that ship. So for anybody who's looking to get a hold of you, what is the best place for them to visit you, Mike? Uh, probably my spectrumfit.net uh, website. Um, you can uh, I actually have an article on there about I uh, just released about uh, corticosteroid injections for shoulder pain. So um, there's some good blogs up there. If you need to get a hold of me, there's a way you can reach me on that. So uh, probably the best way to find me is there. Perfect. And for anybody watching on the video, we obviously have that on the screen right now. For anybody listening on the podcast, uh, that is spectrumfit.net, S P E C. T-R-U-M-F-I-T dot net. Uh, and you can get a hold of Mike Stair there. And Mike, you're going to be coming on regularly now. Um, but we said every other week, every other Wednesday, and yep. today's a Friday for when we're recording this, but every other Wednesday. Yeah, sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Perfect. So if you guys have any questions for, for Mike, um, save them for uh, not next week, but the week after. We'll be back talking about something some other injury prevention stuff. Um, and I think that's about it. Brad? Well, I'm excited he's going to be on uh, twice a month. I feel like I'm going to have a DPT in physical therapy by the time we're done with all this. Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll call you Dr. Doctor then, right? That's, that is exactly what I do not need at this point in my life. <laughs> exactly what I'm going to start doing, though. Dr. Dr. Brad. Dr. Dr. Brad. Oh, God. Uh, I can't wait till we go out to eat next time and, I, and we make a reservation. Can you make the reservation for Dr. Brad Dieter, Ph.D.? No, Doctor. my God. Let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, All right, guys. Well, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next, or you'll hear us next time. We don't see any of you, I guess, so we won't see anybody next time. We will, you'll, you'll hear see us next us time. Next you'll time. see us maybe or hear us <laughs> next time. All right, everybody. Take care. Thanks so much for checking out this episode of Am I Live, a podcast from Macros Inc. If you've enjoyed the show, please feel free to subscribe, rate, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate it. Until next time.
Thanks so much for checking out this episode of Am I Live, a podcast from Macros Inc. If you've enjoyed the show, please feel free to subscribe, rate, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate it. Until next time.